And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, as well as the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has other great podcasts like Marketing Made Simple, hosted by Dr. J.J. Peterson. Now, Marketing Made Simple brings you practical tips to make your marketing easy and, more importantly, make it work. If you like any of these topics, you definitely want to go check out the show, how to write and deliver a captivating speech, how to market yourself into a new job, how design can help and also hurt your revenue, creating a social media ad strategy that actually works. If these topics resonate with you, go check out Marketing Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Janelle James. She is an experienced global marketing strategist, consumer expert, and diversity and inclusion specialist with a passion for changing the world. Her career spans over 20 years, includes multiple marketing disciplines, and has enabled her work to touch over a billion people. Her global work experience includes recognizable agencies such as Leo Burnett, Edelman, and Kintar, and supporting brands such as McDonald's, Procter & Gamble, Samsung, American Express, eBay, Disney, and Shell. She is currently a research director at Kintar, where she designs, conducts, and analyzes a wide range of studies for Fortune 500 companies and consults client partners on everything from consumer and market knowledge to inclusion to marketing plan development. Prior, she was the executive vice president at Edelman, and she was a senior vice president at DDB. So we spoke about a variety of different topics. We spoke about how businesses are adapting to growing diversity, equity, and inclusion concerns. We spoke about how to tailor your marketing to different demographics, uh, different audiences properly. We spoke about what businesses can do to be more impactful in the DE&I space that transcend and go a little bit further than just creating a rainbow logo. We spoke about how do you uncover biases in organizations. And then lastly, we spoke about some of the biggest misconceptions that she's seen in marketing and advertising. My career, my origin story. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It is such a pleasure. Um, uh, I am from Brooklyn, New York. I was born to uh, two Guyanese immigrants. So my parents are from Guyana, South America, which is a very diverse culture. They have uh, six different ethnic groups. Um, uh, so I grew up eating a lot of everything from Indian food to Chinese <laughs> food. <laughs> um, and uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, which is, you know, a melting pot, um, very West Indian neighborhood. And I think growing up there, it always made me, I think, proud of my culture. 
um, but interested in other cultures um, because it was sort of a working class um, pan West Indian environment. Um, you know, being the child of immigrants, my parents always emphasize doing well in school and using education as an opportunity. So around the fifth grade, I got into this program called Prep for Prep, um, which opened you know my family's eyes to different educational opportunities. And so um, from, because of that program from middle school uh, through the end of high school, I went to a private all-girls school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan called Chapin. Excellent school, um, but that very much um, changed, I think, my trajectory. And, um, you know, to give you perspective on Chapin, the girls that go there are um, amazing. Uh, I can think of um, Nixon's daughters, Jackie Kennedy Onassis, Estee Lauder. Wow, um, wow. That's, uh, <laughs> to, that's, to an, that's an impressive few. alumni. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, very, very impressive alumni. Um, and, and also a really great, I think, caring organization. I loved, I loved going to school there for the six years that I was there. Um, and I went to Harvard after that. But I, you know, since I started at Chapin, I've been in an amazing place where I was always navigating um, different organizations, academic institutions, um, with people that didn't really look like me. Uh, and so that was great because I got to learn a lot about other cultures. Um, when I was in high school, I also did a summer abroad in France. Um, so I lived with a family in Saint-Nazaire, um, which was, incredibly amazing immersive experience and so I, I bring all this up before even getting to my career journey just to say that um, I've been influenced by so many different cultures and I've spent my life around so many different types of people and it sort of naturally comes together in the work that I do um, I think as a marketer when I started my career at Leo Burnett um, I loved it because it just made sense in a lot of ways. You are helping a brand understand how to connect its products to people um, in, in its most basic form. And that's something that I found really exciting. Um, whatever I've done, we've always leveraged consumer insight, consumer research. And so I've done, I guess, a number of rotations, so to speak, um, in different marketing disciplines. So I started in advertising working um, for McDonald's um, while I was at Leo Burnett and um, doing local McDonald's advertising. So that's everything from sports sponsorships to lobster rolls and, <laughs> and new local products um, like the lobster roll um, in, in New England. And after two years of that, I got an opportunity to work um, uh, still with Leo Burnett, but um, for McDonald's Italy. So I moved to Italy. Um, worked on that for two years, which was amazing. Another immersive experience, learning how culture, economics, politics can shape a brand, um, even with universal messaging and a lot of same, similar products. Um, stayed on uh, at Leo Burnett in Italy, but then switched clients and started working on a number of P&G brands um, in the feminine care space for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and um, a new product launch in North America and Western Europe. So. All of my experiences increased in scale and I was just doing a lot more, learning about different audiences, learning how to connect them to different types of products and different types of services. Um, decided to go to business school. That was a fantastic and phenomenal experience. Worked in banking for the summer, which just gave me a lot more um, perspective on business, finance, um, and helped to build my own financial acumen. Um, after that, I... Um, Returned to Leo Burnett um, in a business development role, 
um, for the company. I was a VP of marketing innovation, helping them strategically build business in certain sectors, as well as, um, um, did I lose you? No, no, you're good, you're good. <laughs> okay, okay, so I'll keep talking. Um, a business development role, which was fantastic just in terms of you know working now on a global level at the company um, as opposed to attached to a specific country, but just gave me more perspective on the industry. And my career after that really um, becomes a rotation of sorts. I was very interested in not only connecting with different types of consumers, but learning about different types of marketing services businesses. And so I decided to move to a more creative advertising agency and that's how I landed at DDB working on a number of Mars brands after that I decided to rotate again and um, went into PR with Edelman um, working on the shell business across 40 markets and then after that I decided to rotate into uh, research uh, research has always been a, a part of what I do in terms of connecting with consumers and understanding their lives motivations behaviors and um, it just in many ways felt like a very natural fit. Um, absolutely loved um, my job and the work that I did. And um, did not think, <laughs> you know, six and a half years in that I would still be in research. Um, I always thought I would have returned to advertising after these various rotations. But it's been an interesting home of sorts because it's allowed me to work across a number of different categories, a number of different marketing challenges, and a number of different types of consumers. So I feel like this in and of itself has been a very interesting immersion into um, just consumers in general um, of all types. And it's provided me with a number of opportunities to not only connect to uh, these businesses and, and clients in a more intimate way and learn about different consumers, but also a lot of the issues that we talk about in society today, you know, and how brands want to address them and uh, make it part of their um, um, communications. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things that are relevant to everyday people, I get to do research on uh, and, and understand how that affects um, people's lives. And so uh, there are so many things that we could talk about, you know, how COVID is impacting There's, there, <laughs> Well, your, your experience is very... Racial and social justice. No, I was going to say your experience is very impressive. That's that's like, and, and I, I appreciate that you keep compounding and compounding and adding on. Um, so the work that you do, the work that you, you do right now, at least. So just walk me through, walk me through just to explain to everybody the research that you're doing. How does it actually impact yeah. uh, the consumer? Yeah. So I do generally three different types of research. Um, so I'm a qualitative market researcher. Um, so I do qualitative and qualquant studies, which means um, at, at its heart of it, I literally speak to people in groups or one-on-one -on -one to understand um, more about their lives and more about their preferences and choices when it comes to different products. And to help brands, I will do roughly three, three different types of research. Um, I'll uh, help them evaluate campaigns or creative in various different forms to make sure that it resonates and is relevant and is motivating to that particular consumer. Um, so creative assessment is one type of um, market research that I do. Another type is product development. Um, lots of companies will create products and in various stages, sometimes it's just an idea, other times it's an actual product. And I speak to consumers to understand what could be better about that product, what could be improved, what kind of products they should make instead mm -hmm. if it doesn't work at all. 
And um, that also helps to inform communications. Um, and then the third sort of group or set of research that I do is more foundational. So a brand might decide that they want to connect with a new audience that they've never connected with before. And I'll do work to help illuminate that consumer for them. Um, so for example, you know, I, um, not in the too distant past, I had um, a, a brand that was very interested, a media company, very interested in illuminating the lives of black women in America, because they realized that was a very important segment that often set trends um, with uh, the rest of the content that they create. Like they, they just noticed that whenever they create content that works for black women, it works for everyone. So they're like, let's learn more about this target so that we can create um, better um, content overall. Yeah. And so um, that's a, an example of sort of a more foundational ethnographic type of research that I might do. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, security is one of the major issues big tech is currently facing. From AI scrapes to data leaks, starting your business solidly can be just as difficult as growing it securely. HubSpot is on a mission to help your business grow better with a CRM platform that grows with you. Start your venture with HubSpot's easy-to-use, secure website builder that scales with your business. As you grow, ensure your team of two is just as secure as your team of 200 with secure sign-on, content and asset partitioning, and scalable team permissions. Whatever comes next, make sure your business is ready for it. Learn how your business can grow better at HubSpot.com. So there's obviously a few a few uh, key events over the, the past years that have obviously been probably pretty relevant to your work. Um, so so what what so, you know, like people that are, are listening to this show, um, they all have a, a mind for marketing, but I don't think they have the access to insights that you would have. So what are some mm -hmm. pick, pick a topic? It could be COVID. It could be social justice. It could just be general consumer behavior. Yeah. What's something that you've noticed that has just completely shifted over the past two years? And, and what are we, what are businesses doing to deal with this? Well, you know, diversity and inclusion is such a huge topic, I think, not only in marketing, but just for businesses overall. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is top of mind and come up, comes up in a lot of the conversations that I have not only with my client partners, but also sometimes just naturally in the course of um, conversation with um, in the course of conversation with consumers, you know, as we're conducting research. Uh, so, for example, you know, I'm working on a study um, to help make clinical trials more inclusive. Um, so it's not just consumer brands that you might think about that are prioritizing inclusivity. It's all kinds of brands that are prioritizing that, um, not only from a consumer perspective, but also from an employee perspective. And so that's, I think, a pretty hot topic as well. Um, incidentally, I actually wrote my first opinion piece. You wrote an op-ed on this. <laughs> okay, so what was the what was the uh, what was yeah, the opinion? Let's let's dive into the opinion. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> yeah, we can definitely dive into the opinion. I mean, what's fascinating is you know Juneteenth is a yeah. holiday. Um, so that was last yeah. Saturday. Um, a lot of companies are celebrating um, it or finding ways to celebrate it. And, you know, the U.S. just took a vote um, to make it uh, a federal uh, holiday. And I'll be honest, it's existed for, you know, a very long time. And I was an Afro-American studies and sociology major in college. So that was the first time I'd heard about Juneteenth. 
and admittedly, I had not heard very much about it <laughs> living in the Northeast and other places um, since college until last summer. Um, and so obviously I knew about it, but it became part of you know our vernacular, our vocabulary as a country just last year. And I very much think that in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the resulting social justice movements, you know, people were looking for a way to um, commemorate, celebrate, honor, um, and it was just timely <laughs> that, you know, George Floyd was murdered at the end of May and Juneteenth was, what, yeah. two, three weeks yeah. later? And so a lot of companies were looking for ways to build awareness around uh, social justice, racial justice, and brands began to talk about Juneteenth in a way last year that's never happened before. And for me, just as I, you know, was bracing myself for Juneteenth coming up this year, I was just kind of cringing a little bit. Um, I think a lot of professionals in this space, a lot of people of color um, feel the same way um, because, you know, it's not just about doing something to um, show solidarity um, in terms of racial justice or social justice, but authentically doing so. I get the opportunity, you know, I mentioned I do work um, in terms of creative development and product development. And over the years, probably a little bit more in the last couple of years, brands are always looking to better connect with, um, mm -hmm. you know, black Americans, with um, black people in general. And I do test quite a bit of work or evaluate quite a bit of work with consumers that are targeted to this specific audience. And one of the things we consistently hear all the time is that um, it should feel authentic. It shouldn't just feel like you're doing something. That, that's, to do something that's marketing 101. That's marketing. That's marketing. One, but exactly, but exactly. I, I know I, I appreciate where you're going with this. <laughs> and I actually have I have a, I have opinions about this as well. And it just seems like every. OK, so I'll draw I'll draw a very uh, like a, I'll draw from a very visual example. Every every company logo has now changed yeah. to a, a rainbow flag. Right. Yes, what exactly. is that doing something? Maybe for some companies they're doing a lot more than that, but I mean, yeah. what's the actual tangible thing that you're doing yeah. versus changing a logo? Or I, I don't know. I don't know what companies totally. actually do besides letting people go home for the day on Friday for Juneteenth. I don't know if there's other actions yeah. taken, but um, <laughs> anyway, I'm just I'm curious what your thoughts are. I, you know, yeah. it varies at different companies. I think, you know, the, the pride example that you brought up is a great one. Um, you know, I think at a basic level, um, showing solidarity in the month of June for pride um, helps people understand that mm -hmm. they're safe spaces, that they can have these conversations. But I think the challenge that we have oftentimes is doing these efforts on a content mm -hmm. calendar, you know, literally like, yeah. It's June. Yeah. Let's make sure we do everything for Pride Month. It's February. You know, let's make sure we do everything for Black History Month. It's yeah. March. <laughs> let's do everything we can for women. Yeah. It's Women's History Month. And the reality is, you know, I'm a black yeah. woman every day, you know, and I think the same is true for everyone. You know, wherever you are, whatever, whatever your identity is, I think it's important for people to feel like they have that they're 
important every so, day. So, so Not if, just... you, if you see a company that's, uh, well, almost all companies now are, are, are actively showing yeah. support and, and, and obviously they should, but um, after the month is done, as an individual that's part of that group, how do you feel? Do you feel like things have changed or do you feel like your company was just fitting into a content calendar? I think it depends on the yeah. person, you know, um, for some people that might be enough for others. It might not. I think it also depends on the brand. Um, what I would just caution a brand to do is whatever you're doing, make yeah. sure you're always doing it. Um, because that's how it feels more authentic. And that's the type of feedback that I get from consumers oftentimes when we're testing work focused on a particular segment. You know, They wanna know not only that the company is honoring them at this particular time or with this particular product, but that this company authentically wants them to mm -hmm. be a part of their business, that cares about them authentically. And so things feel more authentic, feel more genuine when they happen all the time, not just when they happen, you know, a hundred percent for, for um, a, a, a week or a month or a, a holiday a or a day or a day. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the opinion piece was, was it basically touched on that. Um, but it really highlighted, you know, one opportunity to feel more authentic and more genuine in terms of how you celebrate Juneteenth or, um, pledge solidarity with any community um, that is marginalized is to look inward at your employees um, because they're a very important influencer group for all of your consumers, but also a very important stakeholder um, in terms of delivering the products and services that you have. And so ensuring that there's a certain degree of congruence between you know what you say publicly and your operations internally that can really be an interesting link um, because there have been a few instances where companies have um, pledged solidarity or pledged to give millions or pledged to support you know black-owned businesses but then internally their their companies their um, employees excuse me um, are struggling yeah. with many of the things that they're you know they're feeling isolated they're not feeling like you know they're being treated equitably or they're not feeling included and so, um, you know, it was just the opinion piece was really just a reminder um, to take that step and also include your employees and sort of look inward um, at how you can authentically deliver um, on these these promises. One thing that I, I think is an interesting topic and, uh, you know, we can we can try and unpack uh, as many different examples or high level examples as, as we possibly can in, in a short podcast, but um, we're not, we're not going to yeah. focus on people that are not making efforts. Let's focus on people that are making efforts because those are the people that really mm -hmm. do care. We hope so undercover, uh, like undercover bias. Yeah. So, so undercover bias, yeah. meaning you may be biased in things <laughs> you do and you don't know, you don't know it, right. You don't know if you're, and yeah. we were speaking about this a little bit before and, and uh, you know, drawing the example of when you try and hire the way that you portray your company, is it attracting, is it attracting everybody versus just a, a group of people that mm -hmm. perhaps are already in your company, right? Or in, with your marketing. So how do we uncover undercover bias? Yeah. How do we, because uh, <laughs> I think that this is something bias. that's interesting Great and question. it's obviously, this is a step further than just 
yeah. than just signaling that you care about a cause. This is actually looking deep inside. Yeah, and, totally. and I spoke about like, you know, I've, yeah. I've had conversations about how do I uh, actually funny enough. Now I speak about bringing women into tech, into sales, but I feel like um, my actually my whole sales team is actually all women. So, you know, maybe maybe that part's been been checked off. But I mean, like it, it's it's something that I'm sure in in many industries, it's it's not the case where you have a lot of like maybe in tech, at least yeah. bro culture or that that kind of thing that you that you have in these types of organizations. Yeah. And it just sort of just doubles down when you put in another job requisition. Now this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. I think you can actually analyze any process that mm -hmm. you have for bias. And I'll give you, I'll give you a story. So last summer, you know, in the wake of all of this happening, I had a colleague who was in the midst of preparing a presentation um, for a big uh, tech line, actually. And she said to me, you know, we want to talk to them. We want to help them be more inclusive in, in how they do research. They want to be diverse and inclusive in how they do research. And she's like, can you tell me where bias lives in the research process? And before I could answer, she said, it's in recruiting, right? And I was like, not only is it in recruiting, it's everywhere. And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, will you name a part of the research process and there's gonna be bias in it. And I think her head kind of exploded when I said that. It was like it was like a Friday afternoon and like I want to say the presentation was like Monday or Tuesday and she was like can you just write this down can you just make a slide <laughs> and just help me understand this and so literally that weekend I made a slide right um, and I literally put like seven different process elements and then two or three questions for each element that you could ask to understand where bias lives in that Let's process so I'm gonna I'm gonna share that with you and it's something that we circulated quite a bit um, in the organization and, and used with this, with this client and a few others. Um, but I started with team composition, right? So, and thinking about bias just in a very almost scientific way, you know, because bias is human, right? And so interrupting bias, the, the sort of premise behind it is interrupting bias is critical for unlocking best in class research capability and templates, routine ways of working, undue speed, all of these inadvertently invite bias into the process, right? Because you're going to try to be the most efficient as you can with the way you do work. And it, and it really creates preference for traditional approaches um, if you're doing any of these things. So looking at the first element of how we just conduct research, looking at the team composition, even on the client side, is the team, agency or client, working on the initiative homogenous? And not only homogenous from an ethnicity or racial perspective, but from an education perspective, from just a background perspective, right? What skills, attributes um, will be most valuable throughout the life cycle of the project and do we have that present in this team, right? Then we go on to the brief or just proposal. So the brief is what the client will issue to the research company and the proposal is how the research company answers that brief. So how are we describing the target in this opportunity? Mm -hmm. You know, bias could live in there. Are we leveraging or should we leverage insights or perspectives from any past projects? A lot of the times, you know, one of the things I'm doing right now, I mentioned um, with uh, clinical trial research. With clinical trial research, oftentimes inclusion or exclusion criteria is just copy pasted from study to study, right? 
that happens <laughs> that happens in a lot of studies right not not just clinical trial but just all over right companies will build on their learning by using learning from another study is that something we should even do with this study is that a question that we're actively asking and choosing this time around um, are the research methods we're choosing for this study best suited to illuminate the target right will the research methods inadvertently um, inhibit target audiences so for example you know if you're trying to I have I have a uh, an alcohol client and she lives in New York City and she was telling me um, you know I was just walking down the street um, in Harlem and she's like I literally saw people um, on the corner drinking mm -hmm. um, very high-end brands not her brands but very high-end brands she was like they were drinking Moet um, they were drinking yeah. um, you know Hennessy and playing games she's like, it yeah. was like they were in their homes like just a game <laughs> night but it was like outside and she was like what she was like what an amazing yeah. thing but this is COVID. i don't know maybe that was their their way of being socially distant and she was so fascinated by this and what she said to me she was like janelle when we do our next study i want to make sure we're doing some grassroots recruiting that we can get that we can she's like do your databases do they will they get those people like that we're just hanging out on the street because she just yeah. wants to know yeah. when people are drinking wherever <laughs> you know, in traditional and non-traditional ways. And sometimes the methods that you choose to do research might not incorporate the full range of people, right? You know, oftentimes right now we're thinking a lot about different levels of ability, right? If you're doing research via Zoom in this way and you want to tap into, you know, people who are disabled, depending on your disability, you might not be able to, yeah, you know, yeah. do research via yeah. Zoom or, any, you know, and so you have to think about are the research methods conducive to reaching the target that you want? And that's something that you have to critically think through. In terms of recruiting, which was the original question that I received, are we sampling for inclusion? You know, um, are the databases that we're using truly representative? Um, are we finding our audiences where they naturally exist? Oftentimes when people want to do research, you know, with um, African-Americans or with black people, for instance, it was always very interesting. They're like, okay, we want to do research in Chicago. We want to do research in Atlanta. We want to do research in New York, maybe Baltimore. And it's yeah. like, yeah. black people live in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> black people live. So one of the great things about, um, you know, online research is that you can tap into national audiences very easily and include people in your research that not, you know, black people don't only live in black neighborhoods. Are you getting a full picture of the black community, for instance, and this is any community. Is that, is this, is this a standard? Like what you're saying though, like, like yeah. the second you start to say, well, if I want to, if I want to get some data points from a black community, I'm only going to go to what I think a black community is. And I don't look at those variables. Is that a standard? Is that something that you see repeating again and again and again? It, so it really depends. So I think it depends who you have on both sides of the equation, right? Um, so for, here's an example. Sometimes a client might say they already have the study in mind because they have really smart, capable researchers on their side, right? But they just don't conduct the research themselves. So they might design the study and say, I'm just looking to do research in these five cities, right? Other times with this particular target, other times they might be looking for a recommendation. Um, and so if they're looking for a recommendation, depending on who they partner with, 
you know, they might say, you know, one of the things that I love saying, if a, if a client is looking for mm -hmm. research in a particular city, I will make recommendations. So I actually love doing research in Houston because Houston is actually one of the most diverse cities. I think people sort of forget about it <laughs> sometimes. It's the fourth largest city in the country. It's huge, right? I mean, Texas is huge. I think three of the, the largest cities. In, I, I don't. In the yeah, top I don't think people. Right. I don't think people uh, think about it as as a yeah. as a diverse metropolitan hub. You know, like <laughs> melting pot. But it, it, it Houston yeah. very much is, and so there's a lot of everyone in Houston. When they say it's the most diverse, yeah. it's not that they just have a lot of black people. They have a lot of everyone. They have a lot of white people. They have a lot of Hispanic people. They have a lot of black people. You know. Um, and so it's a, it's a great city to do research in because people tend to be a, a lot more mm. diverse in their thinking, a lot more cosmopolitan, um, any number of things. And so how you have that conversation about where you recruit, um, depends on how willing the client is to consider other locations and, you know, locations that they consider for research are a function of where they do business as well as who they want to learn about. And so you always want to make sure that you have people on your teams, if you work for a research agency, that can help a client make a decision and make recommendations to help them get the best understanding of the target that they want. And so it really depends who's on both sides. Um, you know, are our diverse audiences a monolith? That's another big question that we ask. So for instance, if I'm doing research, all the black people shouldn't look the same. <laughs> They're not a monolith, just yeah. just like all Hispanic people are not the same, just like all white people are not the same. And so sometimes when you're recruiting, people might think, oh, just because that person's black, we have a representative sample. But no, for instance, all black people don't live in black neighborhoods. All black people don't have certain types of jobs. You know, at least 10% of black people are immigrants. Yeah. Um, and that's just- that's, that's, That would be immigrants. first generation? I wouldn't be is, considered is an immigrant, even though my parents yeah. are immigrants. Yeah. 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 Well, it depends how you it depends how you de de define first generation. Because okay. technically, I'm the child of immigrants, so I would be first generation. Yeah. But if someone moved themselves, they would be first generation as well. You know what I mean? So there's. But then you can have a Jamaican family that moved to the U.S. in the 30s or the 40s, and they still very much identify as Jamaican in yeah. their heritage, but they're not considered, you know, immigrants at that point. And so just making sure your diverse audiences are not monolithic is huge. Um, uh, so, I, so that's another big one in terms of recruiting um, and asking the question. Yeah. No, I was going to say just on that point, because I just I'm just sort of thinking about how we have all been now sort of uh, able to work from home or most companies have been allowing people to work from home. Have you seen that have an impact on the ability of a company to have a more diverse workforce? Because realistically, that should enable it. That should enable because now you can recruit from anywhere. Yeah, I think definitely. That's one of the things that I think I'm seeing sort of anecdotally. It's one of the things that I'm reading about. Um, it definitely, I think, lowers a number of different barriers. But the the only barrier is not necessarily, you know, location or geography. Um, you know, we were yeah. talking about access before and networks, you know, and a lot of where you're able to work and the jobs that you know about are a function of who's in your network. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt your, your train of thought. Like, yeah. I think that that point about um, continue, continue with with the, the different things that you're yeah. looking for in research. But then I, I think that what we were talking about before this call, I think that would be good to to bring up as well. 
the the access and the network piece yeah of course um so recruiting is is one part of the process um how you develop the questionnaire you know when we're doing research it's not like you're you're winging the conversation (laughs) you you literally create questions and you can you know um, be dynamic in terms of how you have the conversation but um, we literally create a guide that we align with our client partners and so in terms of creating that guide you want to make sure that the questions in the guide are checked for implied bias or traditional assumptions. I mean, even something really simple mm-hmm. as gender in this day and age, how you ask a gender question, how you ask an ethnicity question, it literally, literally needs to be open-ended. Check all, that, check all that apply because you could be insulting people in a way and they don't feel comfortable and they could literally shut down um, on you. Um, are we using gender neutral or anti-racist language in terms of how we ask questions? Um, do all the questions provide an out for unexpected feedback? Um, you know, I'll have see surveys and things that just sort of come across my desk or come yeah. up in social media. And just as a researcher, I, I look more closely at them just to see how people ask questions. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate 
on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com excellence. That's linkedin.com excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. 
text success that's s-u-c-c-e-s-s to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with belay oftentimes there'll be multiple choice and there won't be a none or there won't be an other but surely yeah, well that, that, <laughs> there should always be or, a none, not, and there should always be so another. That, that right that right away would 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 hurt the the integrity of the data because now that that person that falls into either of those none or other camps yeah you're forcing someone to choose and a choice that's not applicable to them is not there and mm-hmm. if you're truly taking a position where you want to learn something new almost every topic you should provide an out for them like one of the things i've sort of trained myself to do in terms of asking questions it's always, you know, whatever I'm curious about, yeah. like, you know, um, what's your favorite TV show? I've trained myself to say, what, if any, TV shows do you like? Because maybe they don't like TV at all. And just by asking, you're forcing them. So then they might be thinking, okay, well, I have to give them my favorite TV show, but I really hate so TV So your dad overall, is, your dad is right? useless. It's, it's garbage, <laughs> so, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, making sure that your questions provide an out is huge in terms of how you're um, developing the guide in terms of how you conduct the field work. Um, you know, is the moderator flexible and able to relate to a number of audiences? I think that's a really important one when you're conducting potentially live research. Um, is the moderator employing techniques that encourage sharing diverse stories? Um, you know, oftentimes people will say focus groups are awful because they have a lot of group think. Um, and I always say, you know, Focus groups are awful if you have an awful moderator. <laughs> you have to know how to ask people questions, you know, in a way that they feel comfortable sharing a dissenting opinion. You know, one of the things that I'll do oftentimes is um, if someone makes a very strong opinion, yeah. I'll say, great. Does anyone disagree with him? Because when you ask that question, then people feel comfortable disagreeing, like it's okay to disagree, you know? And there are lots of other techniques that you can do, but these are things that you should be thinking about when you're conducting field work um, um, and looking to make sure that you're avoiding or interrupting bias where it could exist. In the analysis, you know, um, are we under or overemphasizing um, parts of the data artificially um, to achieve the desired diversity, <laughs> right? So oftentimes someone will look at a sample, and this is for qual or quant research, they'll look at a sample and say, okay, well, you know, we, we will overweight this criteria because that's what we really want to learn about. But if you're overweighting something that's already wrong, <laughs> you just have more wrong data. <laughs> There's so many, like, as you're, as you're discussing this, I'm just thinking back to, like, like hiring and recruiting process now and how mm-hmm. all these lessons, everything you're... Now, this is, this is, this is the, the, the million-dollar question. Um, when yeah. you're trying to find somebody that's going to be successful in a role where you do have to eliminate certain, not, not people in terms, but like if they don't have the skill set, they can't be in that role. Yeah. So how do you bring over these lessons and learnings from, from your research and, and your market research and, and background, and then you bring these into an environment where you don't, where you get the right questions so you can get people who are qualified for a role but you aren't removing anybody based on making them feel uncomfortable or... Well, I think a couple of things. So one, just in terms of closing Mm -hmm. this conversation out, I think you can audit any process that you have. You can audit any 
um, thing that you're doing to really understand where bias exists. This is not just how we do research, right? You can take a look at the steps in anything that you do, marketing, recruiting, um, to understand, and just asking critical questions about where it can live. In terms of, a, you know, if I'm working on an engagement um, or there's an opportunity, well, here's a, actually, here's a really great example. I think you can, oftentimes, it's, how you're able to think about, learn, you know, a, a, a particular skill set or a, a particular genre of information. And so if diversity and inclusion is important in your work or in your mm -hmm. role and you don't necessarily have that experience, then you bring in consultants. You bring in, you know, I'll give you a great example. I was doing research for a CPG brand and a skincare brand, very successful skincare brand. And they were looking years ago to launch a new product um, for black women. And just in a lot of the research they'd conducted, they realized that this was an opportunity. And they also realized that they sort of under-indexed with black women and black women use a lot of skincare products. And so after I did the research, I made a number of recommendations that they absolutely loved. And they said to me, they were like, hey, do you know any consultants that we could like partner with to bring this to market um, because we don't know anything. <laughs> and I was like, me, I can do it. <laughs> you know, I had to figure out how to do it with my company. But what, and they literally brought me in as a quote unquote voice of the consumer consultant. Now, what I ended up doing in, in large part was a lot of the things that I did in my past life, you know, writing briefs to, for the media company, for the for the advertising agency, I would help talk them through, you know, creative and what could be potential issues. You know, as the voice of the consumer, I was bringing a lot of this perspective throughout the creative development process. I was literally an extension to the brand team for about nine months. And I, it went all the way, like I went to the commercial shoot, which is what I would have done in advertising, helping them with casting, how to think about this. And it ended up launching very successfully, being one of their most successful launches, literally in their 100 year history. And what was fascinating about that, I mean, their agency lineup never changed, right? Um, their insights team never changed. And they had a, a good amount of diversity, but what they realized was they didn't have the skill set needed for this project. And so I think companies can do a number of things. You can bring in assistance when you need it, um, particularly in the short term as you figure out how to ramp up for the long term. Um, so I think there are ways to, and now in this day and age, I'm sure it's so much easier to pull in freelance or consulting talent than it would have been in the past. Um, but again, you know, I think working through your networks to figure out who might be best suited um, to bring in that perspective, whether it's a short or on a, or on a long-term basis. And I think if, you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting about diversity and inclusion is you know, helping people realize that this is not just an initiative for HR. <laughs> this is not just an initiative that lives in one part of the organization. It's really mm -hmm. a route to innovation um, or can be thought about like change management initiative. And from that perspective, everyone should own it. And so whether you feel like you're part, you have some sort of diverse identity um, or the initiatives are targeting you, it still should feel like your responsibility to help make the organization more diverse or inclusive or equitable. Yeah. And from that perspective, everyone can participate because at bare minimum, 
even if you're not one if even if you're not part of one of these marginalized groups you know how to navigate your organization and that culture and you can be a bridge so one point so let's so let's because yeah. that, that's going to segue into another story that you're telling me before see i told you <laughs> We should have we should have just done these stories at the beginning because they're all really good stories. Anyway, so okay. one 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 point one point on this. So let's not diminish how important this is for diversity. But everything that we just discovered and spoke about for the past yeah. uh, you know thirty minutes, these are all just best practices in terms of any taking any product to market. It's there's no different. Like if you already know how to if you understand the concept of taking a product and getting. The, the data points and the research and the consumer insights, apply that, apply that with the same tenacity that you would when you want to make money to the other parts mm -hmm. of your organization. And that's, totally. that's really what it is at yeah. its core. I think the challenge is it's easier for people to understand yeah. Yeah. or spot discrepancies when they're part of that group because they know automatically something's wrong, right? And so the challenge is how do you spot discrepancies if you're not so part let's, of that let's, group? Okay, so tell me the story <laughs> about, you said you were uh, working yeah. with an organization, a guy comes up to you, I think, and, and he yeah. says like, hey, I, I'm not part of any of these groups, how can I help? Because I'm, I'm sure, oh, yeah. like, let, let's just be, let's be honest, I'm pretty sure that has gone through the head of many people yeah. in many companies over the past two years, right? So. Yeah. So to, to set it up, yeah. So um, doing work for a media company and, you know, so many brands today, they want to learn more about the evolving demographics in the country. You know, when you look at Gen Z, for instance, and that's what I find so interesting about Gen Z. So the oldest person in Gen Z right now is maybe 24, right? Gen Z is the most diverse generation that we have. Um, it's almost 50% people of color. In some parts of the country, like California, it's 60% people of color, right? And so one of the things that we have to keep in mind, like if we're creating products that literally appeal to the future, they need to feel diverse and, and be inclusive, right? Not only for the 50 or 60% of the people of color, but also for mm -hmm. the 40 to 50% people who are not of color because they're accustomed to being with people of color, right? It's just a higher expectation. And so because of this, as we are helping our client partners, you know, understand changing demographics and how to think about consumers, how to think about Gen Z, how to think about all these things, we often conduct these like workshops to help them action the learning and potentially understand any barriers that might exist in their organization to reaching this type of, you know, inclusion, diversity, et cetera. And um, so doing, you know, a series of workshops with about anywhere yeah. from 10 to 15 people. And you have to think a lot of these people are in these workshops with their boss. <laughs> We're trying to understand, you know, where in their processes, where, you know, they could be more inclusive, more diverse and, and talking about many different things. So in some ways, a very uncomfortable conversation. And one of the things I didn't expect was a few people actually reached out to me after um, the session to talk. And one gentleman that reached out to me, um, you know, he said, um, well, I'll yeah. say when I do these workshops, I always like to tell people that I come from a place of abundance, right? This isn't a zero sum game. It's not about loss at all. Um, it's how do we improve the processes that we have so that it can mm -hmm. feel more inclusive for everyone. So that's always the, the premise sort of like positivity. Um, and so, you know, 
reached out to me afterwards and he's like, I'd love to talk because I'm, I'm still struggling with some of this and I didn't necessarily feel comfortable saying everything around my boss. And so um, we ended up having this conversation and he said to me, you know, I know my company isn't very good at like diversity and inclusion. And I, he's like, I don't know how to think about this. He's like, I'm literally a white guy from the Midwest. He's like, I felt very comfortable talking to you. So he's like, I just feel like I need ideas. Like I want to be on the bandwagon, but like, how, how do I do this? And so I said to him, I was like, first and foremost, um, you know, as I mentioned before, this is about abundance. So I think it's always about making the processes that you have in place better. But I think the key thing to understand is it's not only about bringing more yeah. diverse people in, that's surely a part of it, but you need a champion on the inside to really bring this to life. And you need people who understand how to navigate the culture. And so that's definitely something that you can do. The other thing I would say is recognize what diversity you bring to the table as well. Because just because you're a white man doesn't mean that you don't bring a unique perspective to the table because diversity is not just about racial diversity, right? You know, you're working in California. How many people on your team are from the Midwest? I'm sure you bring a perspective, an upbringing. Yeah, but also frame, a frame of mind too, right? I think he said yeah, no, no, it's true. But I was going to say like a, fr a frame of mind, like the fact that the guy's asking you this question is indicative of enough that there's 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 somebody that wants to do something or change something in a good way. So that's a, that's a major. Yeah. Of course. And, and, does, and is scared because, you know, oftentimes I think when a lot of firms mm -hmm. make these decisions and, you know, every firm, every brand is on a different journey. Um, but sometimes people mean? don't understand yeah. what the actual goals are. We want to be more diverse. What, what, is, what does that mean? And all types of employees are asking questions internally, not just, not just the black people or the Hispanic people or the LGBTQ plus people, right? Everyone wants to know what this means and what we're actually working towards. And I think having clear, you know, clearly articulated goals on that front is, is really important. Very good. Very good. Um, cool. so you know, it's so funny when, when we first started this conversation, you're like, well, I can talk about a whole bunch of things. And then like, you know, diversity is like a portion of like what I do. And then you go into like this, you, you like the most clinical, like educational, like, I feel like, you know, I just got like a full behind the curtain view of, of how we should actually look at diversity. It was very, very good. Thank you. Really. Like, you no, you're welcome. I mean, one of the things I love about diversity and inclusion just as mm -hmm. sort of like a topic area. It's the thing that I love about qualitative research. It's interdisciplinary. It can apply to everything. And so you can end up having, you know, I, and I didn't really think about it at the time, but when I was in college, you know, I was a double major um, and Afro-American studies, for instance, they had professors from almost every different department. They had history professors, they had English professors, they had sociology professors, you name it because it was literally interdisciplinary. And so as I think about diversity and inclusion, I literally think about it that way. You can get experts from anywhere um, because it can apply to every category, every business topic, everything. Do you have, do you have, um, and, and I didn't prep you for this, so you know, I'm, I'm sorry if, I, if, you, if you don't off the top of your head, but do you have examples of companies that are doing more than just putting up a, a rainbow logo or letting their employees off on, on, you know, on Friday companies that are actually doing it well. And you have stories about how they're doing it well or how they're doing it right. 
It's a good question. I think every company is on a different journey depending on their category. So doing it well, I don't think it's just a Yeah. You're you're <laughs> see, sorry. See, I'm not I'm not a researcher. So I'm I'm too uh, you're very like okay, well, what is what how do we quantify well? Like <laughs> Let's be careful. Let's 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 define well first. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, it's not even about defining well first. I think the company has to define it for themselves as well, right? Because everyone's on a different journey in terms of where they started and where they're ending up. But also, I think what's important for their consumer base, what's important for their investors, what's important for their employees. And so, well, I would say is how well they're meeting the needs of all of those audiences. Like one of the things that I found so fascinating, you know, as I was doing a little bit of research for, for my opinion piece, was that um, there was a, an instance where I think it was, you know, I can't remember the company right now, um, but the shareholders actually sued the company as well. They, they had a number of employees um, go to the media to talk about discriminatory practices. And after that happened, a number of shareholders got together and also um, sued the company for breaching their fiduciary responsibility um, because um, they felt like hmm. the discrimination that existed didn't really protect the brand. And I found that so fascinating because I just yeah. never thought of it. It was very, it was a natural leap for me to think about, you know, disgruntled employees because they were marginalized, but it literally did not, it did not occur to me that shareholders would get together and sue the company. It, that's um, a powerful well. statement because you'd think that, but that, but realistically, yeah. that's what will make a company change its practice, right? Without shareholders, like, yes, okay, there is, there is a lot, an enormous amount of pressure if, if there is something that's brought into the media spotlight and whatnot. And of course, you know, cancel culture is a thing and that's something that companies worry about. But I mean, if it's coming from the opposite yeah. end, that's that's enough pressure in and of because then there goes your executive yeah. board like there's you know CEOs fired and if the shareholders that's very interesting I I've never seen an example yeah. of that ever very interesting yeah mm -hmm. the the test for me honestly if a company's doing it well is if it's authentic you know um, if it's authentic if it's genuine um, and if it doesn't feel like a one off yeah yeah. I think that's what we have to be careful. The companies aren't falling into that trap. Yeah. Very good. Well, that was that was a masterclass in in research and and <laughs> no, I'm serious. You you undersold yourself. You definitely undersold yourself. Um, well, okay. So uh, I think that you know we can do like a we'll do we could do like a whole other episode on on just some of your ideas on on advertising and marketing. Maybe we'll do that in the future. Yeah, oh, we should do that, that in the future. So, because <laughs> this was we, I, I try and cap these at about an hour because I don't think people listen for much longer than that. So, so, um, <laughs> what we'll do, uh, I like to pull out some some like career insights. You have an you've had an incredible career, so just some life lessons, uh, so almost like rapid fire. Um, before pivot into that, yeah. is there anything else that uh, you're working on now in in your research or or where you want to progress in your career that you wanted to bring up? So, I mean, 
I'm at an That's interesting good. point, I think, you're doing in good my work career and you're, you're journey happy where I'm feeling a lot of connectivity with the, with everything. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> well, you know, I talk, I literally talk to people for a living. And so it just keeps you so grounded um, just in terms of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like anything that's important in the media becomes naturally important in my work because it's understanding how people are experiencing these things. Um, so... Yeah, no, well, um. no, good. So that's so like, listen, that's that's a so that's a good place to be in. That's a, that's a very good place to be in. Um, okay, let's go through some life lesson that you've uncovered yeah. over your career. Um, you had a lot of different roles. Uh, yeah, what was one of the biggest challenges that you've had moving between companies or, or doing different things uh, over the course of your career? And how did you overcome that? You know, it actually goes back to something that we touched on before. Um, I always think learning and navigating a new culture is a challenge. Um, and so at some companies, it's a little bit easier than others. Um, the other thing that I think is fascinating is company cultures can change as well. And that um, is probably a little bit more difficult than joining one that's um, difficult to navigate in the beginning. So for instance, um, you know, one mm -hmm. of the things that I find fascinating about marketing services, um, is just the amount of M&A activity that happens. And so for instance, when I was working at Leo Burnett, probably about a year or two in, they were purchased by Publicis. We went from being a totally private company <laughs> to being a public company. And there are lots of implications. I mean, you know, at the beginning of my career as a 20 year old, I'm like, the Christmas party isn't as big as it was <laughs> in the past. <laughs> but you know, there, there are lots of changes. And I think that's been one of the interesting things I think mm -hmm. along my entire career journey is just always thinking about how ownership structure um, potentially changes a company. Um, and I've love working in marketing services because you get the opportunity to partner with lots of different clients, um, lots of different work in lots of different categories and, and have literally different jobs, oftentimes without changing companies. But ownership structure can change the culture of a company, um, sometimes overnight. And that's something that um, I think we're always learning and, and trying to figure out how to navigate. Um, so, you know, Cultures in so that's a, that's smart one. even organizational culture. So yeah. Um, no, I'm just going to say that that's a smart one, and, and I don't think anybody's ever uh, brought that up because they've all sort of focused on personal problems. But that that's a good lesson for people that are younger in their career to 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 understand. Uh, you know, the, I think the saying is right: like people don't leave the job, they leave the boss, right? So mm -hmm. take that at a macro level, and, and when <laughs> things. <laughs> Anyways. Um, all right. Uh, what is one of the biggest misconceptions that you've seen in marketing and advertising um, that you'd like to debunk? That I would like to debunk? Yes. The biggest misconceptions. I actually don't know. A market. I literally can't even think of a marketing misconception right now. Um, one of the things that's. <laughs> One of the things that's really funny that's coming to mind, um, and hopefully this fits the bill, is oftentimes now, you know, you'll see in social media, 
when there's an example of advertising gone wrong. Mm -hmm. People will be like, how did this happen? Yeah. Was well, I think there, there's been a few of you know, those, right? There's been a few. Exactly. And they're like, was this a black, was there a black person at this company? <laughs> did they even share this with a person of color? Like, how could, how could this be? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's never, as I understand it, a lot of those instances, it's not always the same reason. Um, well, it's an interesting track. No, no, but it's it. So I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about uh, Burger down. King on Twitter <laughs> saying that all women should stay in the kitchen as a, as a Twitter thread, which turned was horrible. And then there was the, the one a few years yeah. ago, uh, who was the, one of the, oh one of the, uh, was it one of the Jenner, one of the Jenner daughters, like handed a Pepsi to, uh, and like solved world, whatever. But like, I'm, I'm yeah. do you, do you have an idea? Yeah. I have no idea yeah. how some of that stuff yeah. gets approved, but if you have any idea, I'm sure people would want to know because. <laughs> um, um, I think, sorry, I'm so tickled by this. Um, I think it happens a couple of different ways. Um, but oftentimes I think, I'll give you an even better example. In recent weeks, I literally have friends, right? Reaching yeah. out to me saying, oh my God, <laughs> my company's about to do something crazy for XYZ holiday. Help, <laughs> like, what do I do? And. I think what, and I'll definitely give my friends advice, right? On how they should handle something. Oftentimes, a company might not be leveraging the right resources to vet yeah, course, whatever yeah. they're doing. There, there could be, and I'm speaking about this in a very general way because it's not always the same thing that happens, right? Um, but mm -hmm. I think it all boils down to not having the voice of the consumer in the room and actively speaking up. And um, that voice of the consumer can take a lot of different forms. Um, there wasn't and any. And so I would say either <laughs> there wasn't the right type of research, even there wasn't representative research, there might've been no research, <laughs> there might've been, um, but oftentimes I think what it comes down to is not having um, fully mm -hmm. gotten perspective from the target audience. The other thing that I would say, social media moves very quickly um, and oftentimes more quickly than anyone, um, than many of these companies can, can move. I think it was, I think it was a great answer and it was really actually not a misconception. It wasn't a consumer <laughs> was... misconception about what marketing is and isn't. It was more of a brand misconception and you've had big names that have swung and missed. So yeah. I think that's smart. That's very good. No, it's good. <laughs> it's very good. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to your, your other question actually, where you asked me, um, about um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you know a company is mm -hmm. like who's doing it well? And so, you know, what I said before was, you know, are they doing it authentically? Is it not a one-off? But I think 
do they have a way to consistently include the voice of the consumer into their operations, into what they're doing? I think after reflecting a little bit, that's also something else that I think is really important. Because if you have a constant stream of that perspective, that is that is helpful. Um, you know, and using that to inform decisions as well. That's good advice. That is very good advice. Um, okay. If you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? Yeah. If I could tell yeah. my younger self, well, I didn't oh, do the rest. if you could tell your younger Anything? self one thing, uh, like your younger self, one piece of advice, one, one piece of advice. Probably trust your gut. Um, I've really enjoyed, I think, my career journey, but at every step of the way, I'm always, I always end up doing something that I never yeah. thought about and planned. I mean, when I was in college, you could have never told me two years later I would be living in Italy. That just seemed so far-fetched, but what I'll, what I'll say is that in the course of my career, I literally come upon these opportunities and um, and have the, the chance to embrace them. And sometimes they're scary. Sometimes I might be a little bit too naive or ignorant at the time. <laughs> okay. um, but just really trusting myself and, and the decisions um, that I make, because they, they usually turn out really well. Um, but I think instinctively we all have, you know, these barometers um, and you know when something's not going well and you know when something is going well and just trust that. I like that. Um... Pick one person who's been incre like incredibly influential in your life, and who is that? But also, what did they teach you? Oh my gosh, this is going to sound so you don't cliche, know, but it's my everybody. Mom. First of all, everybody's cliche for this answer, <laughs> or this question rather. So it's fine. <laughs> it's my mom. She's literally been there through everything. I mean, and just so supportive. Um, as I mentioned to you, my parents, they immigrated from Guyana. And so it's always, you know, in her mind that, you know, they came to this country for a better life and all the decisions they've made, um, the opportunities that they've exposed us to have been a result of that. But also, you know, she's been this incredible support, like even, <laughs> even today, I mean, I, 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 I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about all the things that my mom's done. Like, for instance, I asked her a question, like, why was it important for you to go to college? And literally her answer was that, so that when my daughters were in college, that I could help them and provide perspective on, you know, what might be difficult. That's a very, like that. it wasn't that's like a thoughtful I went to college too. To, that's a very thoughtful answer. I can yeah, tell you right now, and, if yeah. my kids ask me that, maybe I'll lie to them, but like, that's not, <laughs> I did not have that foresight in college. <laughs> Yeah. Well, also, the thing is, she did it a little bit later because when, you know, in Guyana, my mom, I want to say with like, not yet a bachelor's degree was like a bank manager. She was like a very senior person, right? Granted, she was in her 20s when she came to the U.S. Um, and so when she, I believe, had an associate's degree. So then by the time she decided to mm -hmm. yeah. get yeah. her bachelor's degree, she might, I remember going to her graduation. I was like in first grade, <laughs> I was like in first grade at my mom's college graduation. And um, 
that was the only day we got to, I got to miss school half day. I literally never missed a day of school. Um, and, uh, and it was to go to her graduation. And so she was old enough where she was very thoughtful about what she wanted her children to achieve and how she could actively play a role in that. Um, and at some point, her ambition shifted from, yes, I'm an accountant, I'm you know a controller at this million dollar firm, um, but I'm actively thinking about how to inform, <laughs> help, you know, I, I, I joke around with people because, you know, take your daughter to work day is a thing. I'm like, I think my mother invented that because she was always taking us to, <laughs> taking us to work um, before we take your daughter to work day even existed, you know, it's like come in for a few hours to help us file, you know, help the accounting department or, you know, it was a fragrance company. So there's a lab. So we could like help in the lab. I mean, that was crazy. Um, or talk to her boss. Like she was always, you know, if I had a day off from school, she would literally ask her boss if she could bring us to work to, to work. And we would work. I love that. Yeah. That's good. Very so. good. Um, <laughs> recommend a book or podcast for people to go check out. I mean, is there even a question? Success story. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. That's not allowed. That's not allowed. Um, Pick a something book else. Or a podcast. I listen to so many different podcasts right now. Um, and a lot of them are driven like by topic because there's just so much out there right now. So I think it's really hard to make. You got to pick one. You got to pick one. I know, I know, I know. Like, yeah. look at, like, behind me, there's like. <laughs> <laughs> there's one. There, you got to pick that one. I, that I religiously listen to. Literally, there's only one. Um. And so, you know, I went to Harvard Business School. There are two professors that I had that I absolutely loved. Um, one of them was Mahir Desai. He's a, he's a finance professor. And Young Mi Moon, she's a marketing professor. And they have a podcast along with another professor. And it's called HBS After Hours. And they talk about a range of different business topics. And they're pretty funny. They're really funny, actually. <laughs> and... Uh, that's that's the podcast. That's the podcast. Good. I'll check it. I've, I haven't heard about that one. I'll, I'll have to listen to it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that's a good recommendation. That's a good recommendation. And what else? What else did I not ask you yet? Last question. Last question. Yeah. What does success mean to you? Success is happiness, but it's also providing for my family. I have a three and a half year old daughter, so now I'm like always actively thinking about that um it's happiness and happiness for me it's it's providing for my family it's um being comfortable it's um achieving your dreams um as corny as that sounds um but yeah that's good that's good yeah and then most importantly how do people find you connect with you social whatever whatever you want to drop linkedin um janelle james i'll tell you a really funny story actually so my but there's a there's a comedian. Huh? There's a comedian. There's a comedian. Yes, that's I think, what I was just about I, to tell yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my Twitter handle is at Janelle James. And then, you know, sometimes famous people would follow me. And I'd be like, huh, why did Tate Diggs follow me? <laughs> like, I couldn't <laughs> figure it out. And then I started getting a slew of people like, great show last night at Janelle James. You really rock. And I was like, what's going on here? So, um, yes, there's also a comedian named Janelle James. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> who's also you got the handle. Actually, kind of friends now. You got the. It's that's so funny. Yeah. So I would get her DMs or like messages on Twitter. She apparently we have similar email addresses, so she apparently has gotten a slew of emails of mine. Um, so it's kind of a funny thing, but yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
different. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success that's s-u-c-c-e-s-s to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with belay 